It's the 23rd of July. I'm Arthur S. Falls, and you're listening to episode 10 of Beyond Bitcoin, a show about all things peripherally related to the emerging digital economies. Nothing you hear on the show is investment advice. If you choose to store your ill-gotten gains in something other than your mattress, remember what Adam used to say. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor. This week, Brian Hoffman and Washington Sanchez join me to discuss Open Bazaar, a peer-to-peer encrypted marketplace based on Amir Taki's dark market. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been kind of exploring this these marketplaces and uh, and these new ideas for contracts for a little bit, and it's great to have some actual pros on the line to speak to about it. So Brian, you're the you're the project lead, Brian, right? Have I got that right? And Washington, you're involved in the market development and the contract uh, systems. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yep, that's Brian. Cool. Brian does all the work. I just I just think and write. I'm not to yeah. say that Brian doesn't think, but I just I, I channel my thinking energy into into writing uh, concepts. But but Brian really does all of the uh, the hardcore coding work. Yeah, I think you know sometimes with these projects, it's too easy to get stuck into one avenue, uh, either the research and development, the theoretical side, or or the actual practical side. So it's good that we are able to work so well together. You know, them. You know, a lot of the other parts of the team. You know, yourself, Washington. You know, work on a lot of the the thinking pieces, the research. The, the reasoning behind why we do what we do, and, and I try to piece that together to make it into something that actually can exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, someone's got to be the pragmatic one. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. We, we can't have, uh, you know, these crazy complicated systems that are easy to, to dream up, but, you know, not, not particularly practical to code. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if what Washington comes up with is is him uh, sleep deprived or if it's <laughs> something uh, sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that myself sometimes. Um, I was just I just interviewed uh, Manfred Correa, who's uh, ah yeah Spanish dude. I don't know. Did you guys did you guys listen to the last episode by chance? I, I listened to half of it, so I've I've got the other half to listen to it, but. I've been following Manfred's work for uh, for a little while. I actually had a little bit of communication with him um, because uh, I, I remember it was in the wake of Mt. Gox that he, he just had a enough of enough moment and he <laughs> threw up his hands and said, "That's it. I've, I've had it. I need to create a you know a decentralized exchange." And I'm gonna do it. And you know who is with me? And um, <laughs> he, he he got a little uh, a posse together, and he started working at it. And uh, he's done some really good work. And I, I've I've talked to him previously about um, about a couple of other concepts that eventually, um, very fortuitously, actually became integrated into Open Bazaar. Um, and, and we realized we had a lot of overlap in, in some of the things that we were wanting to develop, but we, we just spoke very, very briefly about it. So it's, it's really cool to see that what he's been developing is, is, um, is, it's nice. It's very well designed. And, uh, yeah, wish him all the, uh, all the best success. Yeah. Well, his stuff is so incredibly, uh, so incredibly simple. 
Um, yeah, it's really awesome. Well, let's let's get into the uh, the roots of Open Bazaar. Um, so, the concept originally kind of had its genesis with Amiyataki at the Toronto Hackathon, right? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. And so that was so you've built on top of what was a dark market, and you've given it an, a, a less intimidating name to begin with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's uh, you know I when the project code was released from the the hackathon, I went and and took a look at it, and I, I just was you know the concept was so simple and so clean and just so inspiring that I, I wanted to be part of it. So I reached out to Amir directly and, uh, you know, he, he kind of lamented that he wouldn't have time to work on it with the dark wallet stuff because this was right before they, they, they came out, they launched their, their product. Um, you know, he just said, you know, if you're willing to do it, go ahead, whatever you want to do, we'll support, you know, let us know if we need anything. And, uh, he gave us some space on their forums and, uh, you know, offered up, some assistance and stuff, but, um, you know, for the most part, they've been hands off and they just kind of, you know, let us run with the concept. And, and I just felt that since they weren't going to be so involved with the project, uh, that it probably wasn't fair to either of us to continue trying to sustain that dark something name, you know, the branding that they were trying to establish as well as the fact that uh, I think it was hampering a lot of, uh, potential support we could have, from developers and you know and other parties, if we continued into uh, the you know that that protagonist kind of uh, naming, and so we just wanted to go with something a little bit cleaner. It's yeah. not like there was a big discussion on Reddit about it or anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that too. I mean, it's funny because when I initially forked the project, I I solicited some some support, you know, some developers to come and try and help me. Uh, and and you can find that post on Reddit. It, it has like no no upvotes. Nobody was interested. But then when the name thing blew up, that's really when people started to <laughs> come out of the closet and start arguing and yelling at each other about it. But but either way, you know that that helped. Uh, uh, kind of it became the impetus to to really get things moving. Yeah, it's crazy. There's, I mean, this place is this space is full of fundamentalists. It seems. And uh, I can imagine, especially what you're working on, is certainly very divisive. Yeah, you just yeah, have to channel I, your fundamentalism in the right way. I, I don't think you know you're you're I, I, you can be a, a purist, um, like an anarcho-capitalist. You can be a purist anarcho-capitalist, or you could be a, a fairly moderate, you know, coexisting with the state um, kind of guy. And it, it doesn't really matter. I mean. You come around the ideas that you want to create, and the fundamental idea is that we wanted a, a censorship-resistant marketplace. We wanted a, a place where to, to sort of complete, I guess, one of Satoshi's original visions, which is to you know use a censorship-resistant currency to trade with other individuals in a censorship-resistant way. Now, he, he phenomenally succeeded in the first half. And uh, there's evidence of him trying to complete the second half uh, in the early design of Bitcoin, um, but he uh, he shelved that for for probably some good reasons. He had to focus on on Bitcoin. Um, 
but you know that 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 second half is is really critical to the overall vision i think of what satoshi was trying to achieve and um you know regardless of where where you come down in your political philosophy that's certainly a a worthwhile concept to uh, to try and implement well absolutely i mean that's the dream that that we all have but yeah i mean i i you know i live in in the suburbs of washington dc and you know i've spent most of my life living around government um you know in my career i've done good government consulting uh it's it's very hard to not get wrapped up in the politics of everything especially when you're in the the kind of epicenter of a lot of this stuff and i have found myself ending up more of a a purist in terms of technology rather than ideology. And mm. I think that, you know, my goal has been to just try and be as uh, agnostic as possible in terms of what we're doing, because I think that, you know, the technologies can be uh, exploited to, to do powerful and wonderful things without necessarily mm. bringing the political lean into it. I think that, you know, as we're building a platform to build on, Others can use it for those purposes, but what we're building is not, it, it needs to be more agnostic than that, I think. Um, those yeah. concepts stay pure, and, uh, you know, we can take a holistic approach at, at what we're trying to do without turning people off uh, by, by pushing it in too far of a one single direction. Yeah, I, I think you guys are on exactly the right track. It's uh, the less ideology loaded into the, into the project, the better. I mean, and there's, and there's certainly room for for those kinds of uh, viewpoints. I mean, we have a lot of people on the product that do feel that strongly. I think that it just you don't want to let it get in the way of actually making progress, right? Sometimes it seems like you're you're moving forward, but you're really just you're moving sideways, and and people can't agree. So it's good to just focus on the technology. Sometimes I think. Well, that, there's no better example of that than when it came to the name. <laughs> of the project i mean there was a big camp that said you should call it the free market so when the government tries to shut you down you can have a headline that says the government is trying to shut down the free market I'm like <laughs> oh well great guys thanks for putting a lot of faith in the project <laughs> I, still get, I still get those emails almost daily <laughs> and, uh, I, I just go okay well google free market you'll never find us you know yeah <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's get into the guts of it anyway, then. Can you explain how, you know, the basic function of the Open Bazaar or what it's built on? Uh, sure. Um, so maybe I'll just give a high-level overview and then maybe Washington can kind of, uh, you know, explain a little bit further about, you know, the true mechanics of what's going on. But, I mean, essentially, as as you described before, it's it's a decentralized marketplace platform i would i would add the word platform because when you say marketplace it, it kind of simplifies it a little bit and i think it's it become so overloaded that most people don't even understand what you're talking about um you know the concept here is that we're building a um almost a a specification or a protocol where people can build software that can talk to each other and do transactions different types of transactions and whether you want to do smart contracts or whatever you want to call it or just fixed price sales like I just want to sell a product or an auction sort of like eBay all those things can be supported because the platform uh, the, the different little storefronts can talk to each other directly uh, rather than going through some centralized 
entity like like you would see on eBay or Amazon. And so what we're doing is we're building not only that specification, we're defining that, but we're we're building a reference client, which is a web application that it's uh, it's peer to peer and it can talk to all the different storefronts. So everybody would download our software, run it on their computer, and and all of those clients and servers would talk to each other directly and facilitate trade that way. And so you would uh, create a contract within your software, put it out on the network, and then others could go and discover it and enter into a trade with you. And the benefit of that is that there is no fee structure in terms of who's hosting those uh, contracts or who's facilitating the trade. When you go to eBay, you post a listing there, and oftentimes it costs money to even put a listing on there. You want to put a couple photos. You want to add a longer description. You want, uh, you know, preferential placement. All those things cost extra fees. And then when somebody uh, wants to actually purchase something from you, they're glad to take, you know, upwards of 10, 15% in a transaction fees from you just to close the deal. And now you're basically giving that, that discount back to uh, the seller's and you're making things just more clean and direct with the you know between the merchant and the buyer. So we think that there's a lot of benefits there to to facilitating that kind of scenario. And not to mention these trades because they're going peer to peer over a network that's very similar to like BitTorrent. You're you're not really going through a middleman who might be collecting that information, uh, performing analytics against it, selling that data to others, collecting identity information, all that doesn't happen because now you're just talking directly to your merchant and and doing it that way. So it's just you and the merchant that would have that kind of information. Um, so you're, you're creating a, a situation where there's less control by a third party of what you can sell, how you're going to sell it, what you can put in your listings, you know, the currency you use, uh, all those different types of uh, parameters of your trade. And the way that we're doing it is through um, something similar to what Open Transactions is doing is uh, Ricardian contracts. And uh, I guess I can let Washington explain that a little bit further. Yeah, sure. Um, so Ricardian contracts, um, I, I just think that this is the next sliced bread. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, Open Transactions has, um, has been playing around with it and using that as their, their, their core way of, of doing their transactions for a few years now. And I've always admired it. And, uh, I remember first, uh, when I first heard about Open Bazaar, like I, I heard about Dark Market, but, then when I saw that Open Bazaar was getting started, one of the um, first things I wanted to find out was, you know, how were they doing these peer-to-peer transactions? And the way it was originally designed, you would basically input your, you know, your your information. Okay, I want to sell a chair for this much, blah blah blah, and then it would just send it to the, you know, to the the other individual, and you'd go from there. And and uh, uh, there was an opportunity there, and uh, I suggested, hey, we should really follow the Ricardian contract model uh, because it has several advantages. So let me now explain what a Ricardian contract is. Um, it's essentially a way of representing um, value 
in the form of a, a digital document or a digital contract. So it's a way of representing uh, a physical or non-physical good or service. And the idea with a Ricardian contract is that all of the information, all of the uh, conditions, details of the product, details of the, the buyer and the seller, etc., every, every tiny little detail of the contract is uh, formatted in a way that can be interpreted and read by a human being while at the same time being able to be read by an application. Um, and so they call this possible by both humans and, and computers, um, which means that, you know, you can format this in either XML, um, which is the way that Open Transactions is doing it, uh, or you can format it in JSON. Uh, so that's the, the way that we're, uh, we're formatting our contracts in, in Open Bazaar. And um, the one of the, the key features, one, one of the other key features of the Ricardian contract is that you would use public-private key cryptography to authenticate um, yeah, the, the terms and conditions of the contract. So if I'm saying, okay, I'm going to be selling a chair for one Bitcoin and, uh, you know, these are the other details, these are my details, etc., I would include my public key. And at the end of the contract, I would digitally sign that contract um, and then pass the, the, the contract to the person who I wanted to sell it to. And they can basically go and they can look at the contract and they can see my digital signature. And using some uh, simple cryptography, they can um, basically verify that the details that I've written in the contract are, are correct, that the digital signature checks out, which is to say that by using this, this method of digital signatures, you can create a tamper-proof contract. So if you're worried about a man-in-the-middle attack, somebody grabbing your contract midstream and, and changing one Bitcoin to two Bitcoin and then changing the address and then sending, um, sending it on its way, the way that it's built within, um, within Open Bazaar is that you can immediately determine whether there's been any tampering because the digital signature will not match up with the public key of, of that uh, of that individual. And likewise, once you've received the contract saying, okay, this person wants to sell it, I want to buy it, I append my details to the end of the contract, I digitally sign it, I can send it back to them, and so on and so forth. And and all the way up to including third uh, a third party to um, to be the third signature in a um, in, in two parts into a multi-signature escrow address, so a two of three multi-sig. And also they can take the contract that two parties have agreed to and then they can digitally sign it. And, and there you have a form of triple entry accounting, which is basically a, essentially a way of witnessing a contract between two parties. And, um, and so that's, that's the basic approach that we've taken um, uh, in order to buy and sell goods and services uh, on Open Bazaar. I'm trying to um, so this is all automated. I wonder what does the what does it look like from the perspective of the arbiter who's who's witnessing mm. these transactions? Um, I'm going to answer that in a funny way. Um, I'm actually going to to say it, I think it, that's an important question, but a, a more fundamental question is what is it going to look like in the eyes of the buyer and seller? Now, if they're looking at this JSON formatted contract with, you know, scary public and keys and digital signatures, this is not going to help 
you know, your mother-in-law being able to hop on there and try and sell her vintage couch. Um, <laughs> You know, and that's certainly not what we're going for. We, you know, th this talk of Ricardian contracts and the digital signatures and fancy cryptography, this is this is all under the hood mechanism. So, ideally, what we want to be one what we want to be able to do is create a user experience that is, you know, virtually identical, if not better, than hopping on eBay and putting your good up for sale. It's just in the background; you're just completely unaware of this very powerful. Um, contract system we have in place in order to make sure that um, disputes, certain types of disputes, uh, won't happen. Uh, On to the point of um, of the the arbiter. Um, the 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 arbiter is, is is a very important role within transactions on Open Bazaar because uh, if two parties are trying to to do an exchange and there is some sort of dispute. Uh, and some decision has to be made about uh, the release of funds from the multi-signature escrow address. This is where the arbiter comes in. This is where they, they have to look at the details of the case and they have to decide, okay, you know, who who's the winning party based on the uh, the information we have at the time. Um, so we're, we're having some discussions right now about the, the best way to do that. And as a matter of fact, about 21 hours ago, I'm just looking on GitHub. I um, posted an, uh, my latest article on dispute resolution in Open Bazaar, and that's where I, I finally got down all of my thoughts together about how it might work. But uh, essentially, this third party um, has two major functions, and those functions can either be separated into two agents, but just for the sake of, of simplicity, we'll just consider them to be one person for the moment. They, they have two functions. One of them is sort of a notary role. So between a buyer and seller, they, they write their, their contract together and they say, okay, I'm going to send this to you for this, this price. And yes, I agree to buy for that price. And then the, uh, the, the third party comes in, the arbiter, and, um, they introduce their public key and they, they sign the contract as that, that third witness. And using the Bitcoin public keys from each party, you can create your multi-signature escrow address. Now, if everything goes right and there's there's no disputes whatsoever, that's about as far as the arbiter is involved, uh, because the buyer can sell can send uh, sorry the seller can send the chair over to the buyer. Um, the buyer says, "Yes, I got the chair. This is fantastic. Thank you for keeping your word." And I'm now you know creating a transaction, releasing the funds to your address. Uh, the seller says, "Thank you very much." They both sign the transaction, and the funds are released to the seller. And the arbiter is not really involved. And so th this aspect of just signing a contract and, you know, offering their Bitcoin public key for the creation of that multi-signature escrow address can all be automated. But in the event of a dispute, you would have both the buyer and seller contacting the arbiter and saying, look, we have a dispute. Uh, this is the nature of the dispute. So you'd have the buyer making their claims, the seller making their claims. And then the arbiter, within a specified time frame, which would be written in their service contract, um, saying, okay, I'm going to adjudicate this within the next five days. I want this evidence from you, um, this, 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 and this, 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 and this from, from both parties. And then they can make, the arbiter can make his decision and say, this is who the winning party is. And, uh, this, and they can write the transaction, uh, accordingly. So if, uh, for example, 
there's no way of securely or you know beyond a reasonable doubt saying that the buyer and the with whether the buyer or the seller was the um was the winning party the arbiter may elect to split the funds 50-50 and uh, so he writes a transaction splitting those funds and either the buyer or the seller can then sign the transaction and then uh, publish it and the funds are released or if the arbiter finds that hey the buyer is in the right then you know they you know the buyer deserves to be refunded the arbiter writes the transaction signs it the buyer presumably signs it uh, as the seller might not be too enthusiastic about doing that <laughs> and then the uh, funds are released from the multi-signature escrow address and they go back to the buyer um, and so that's that's the function of the of, of the arbiter but certainly the notary aspects, the, the signatures and the creation of the of the escrow address, a lot of that can be automated. And that's why I, I really propose in the article that the notary function should be a, a separate agent from the from the arbiter. I mean, of course, the market is going to decide in the end the best way to do this. But it follows along uh, the suggestion made by uh, Pamela Morgan from Empowered Law. She wrote a wonderful article called uh, Multi-Signature. Uh, uh, multi-signature addresses and corporate governance or, or something along those lines. And she really makes the case, especially that uh, the notary function and the arbitration function essentially have a conflict of interest in in some situations, so they should be separate agents. Uh, I, I, I go on uh, in my article to, to describe how uh, with this arbiter role, that it's, it's quite significant because Open Bazaar is not only – creating this marketplace platform for buying and selling goods and services. It's also creating an arbitration market, which is something that a lot of people have talked about theoretically for a long time, uh, but we're actually doing it here. We, we have code to it. Um, and uh, it's, it's quite exciting because there are a lot of possibilities for creating this polycentric merchant law um, which again, if if you're into the theory of of polycentric law, um, then you know it's it's absolutely fascinating. But practically, what it basically means is that before you enter into a trade, or let's say you've entered into a trade and there is a dispute, and both the buyer and the seller need to select an arbiter to sort out, um, you know, who, what the the best ruling is to to resolve the dispute. They can hop on the arbitration market and they can say, look, I, I prefer this guy. And the other party might say, yes, I prefer that guy. But how, how are they able to discern who is a good arbiter or not? And so there's this exciting possibility that the arbiters can uh, post on their, their storefront a list of precedents. So they can say, all right, uh, me, the arbiter, Bob, the arbiter, have I've previously judged 15 cases that can be generally categorized into three types of specific disputes. And these are the different uh, precedents. And I've, of course, anonymized who was involved. I haven't included names or, uh, you know, unique identifiers or Bitcoin addresses. But this is how I've ruled in each one of these cases. And um, that gives a reasonable expectation for the buyer and the seller to, um, to predict what kind of uh, ruling they're going to get from the arbiter. And so, um, and in the case where, you know, okay, the buyer and the seller are adamant about having separate arbiters, then you can have uh, a, basically a voting pool. So the buyer gets their preferred arbiter, the, the seller gets their preferred arbiter, and then the notary or the third party 
who's doing the signing can select randomly or select their preferred tie-breaking arbiter. And uh, I think the final crazy concept that I wrote in, and um, I'm sure I'm paining Brian to to suggest this because he has to code all of this, um, <laughs> is the concept of an appeal system, which is uh, which is kind of fancy. So you can write into your arbitration contract. We can have three rounds of appeal, each you know the case being passed on if one party decides to appeal the decision to uh you know uh presumably higher quality and therefore higher cost um you know arbitration agent or, or pool of arbiters and so you can have your your own mini supreme court if you'd like uh for decision making so um you know all of this is uh is theoretical at this stage but um some of the code has already been written and it's it's pretty exciting what are the challenges for translating this into well i have two questions a how do the arbiters get paid and b what are the challenges for translating this into code so the um in terms of fees um hiring an arbiter to to resolve your dispute uh will be very much like you know purchasing any other good or service on open bazaar everything will be written firstly as a ricardian contract um, you would state what are the dispute, de- you know, the arbitration details. So the arbiter would include their own personal information, their their Bitcoin address. They're saying, okay, I will resolve this dispute within five days. If I make a request for you for certain information, I'm going to give you, you know, X period of time to respond to me. Um, and this is going to be my fee. And if you, if the buyer and seller both agree to use that particular arbiter, they have to, um, indicate in the contract that they agree to follow uh, and um, to go along with the decision of the, uh, the well, the dispute decision by the arbiter. So um, up front, before any service uh, or any arbitration is done, the uh, the details of the uh, of the of how the dispute will be resolved by the arbiter will be written into the contract. Um, as for you know what is a suitable price, that's extremely difficult to predict. Um, however, you can look at existing services such as Bitrated as to see or to get an idea of the price of arbitration um, on that system. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the important thing to also note here is that, you know, everybody keeps saying that multi-sig is the, the way of the future and that that's, you know, a lot of the dark markets are starting to go to multi-sig um, you know, transactions with with some kind of arbitration, and I'm I'm doing air quotes right now. Is you know essentially that third party arbiter is the actual dark market. So while they can't just run off with your funds, they're essentially determining how those funds get released or, or can or participate in that and also receive fees. Uh, one one main differentiator here with Open Bazaar is that we don't ever serve as um you know a forced arbiter Mm. so so the arbiters like like washington mentioned is we're creating a market for those arbiters and so the market will decide who that third party is not us as open bazaar uh and then and then also the fee structure so you know a lot of those markets will charge a, a set fee that they want to take as part of the, uh, you know, hosting the marketplace, 
and and that's hard coded into their their market. But us, it's fluid. So as there become more and more arbiters, and you know some of them become rated uh, positively or negatively, there will start to create this uh, fluid market. Of, of people that you can trust and, and people will be able to command higher arbiter fees uh, based on that information. And that's, you know, in terms of coding that, you know, obviously the code hasn't, hasn't been completed yet. We're still doing that and we're still actually walking through the process of, of how that's going to work functionally. But, you know, I mean, you can tell that, uh, you know, the, it's going to be very dynamic in nature. Yeah, there's uh, one thing I want to, there's just one thing I want to add to that as well. Um, back to the concept of, of precedence, um, you know, often uh, some uh, complaint that can be made uh, is, well, what if one party can't afford an arbiter or, don't, you know, can, can people be priced out of the arbitration market or be priced out of a decent arbiter? And to that, I would say that the, uh, the precedents offer a way for um, high-quality arbitration at, at a low price because if, um, let's say, there is one arbiter who's the bee's knees, they're, they're epic in proportions, they're, they're, they're like well-known, highly rated, everybody loves them, um, you know, and they have their, their, their precedents up on their, their storefront and they're immaculate, they're, they really are the gold standard for arbitration. Then uh, a new upstart arbiter can essentially, in order to to build their own case, um, the case history, they can offer a number of arbitration services pro bono and list other people's precedents or other arbiters' precedents as the model that they're going to follow in terms of resolving a dispute. So you can have potentially high-quality arbitration services being offered for uh, a low price. Um, which is just one of the dynamics that I guess we predict might occur on the arbitration market. I mean, we'll, we'll have to uh, let time tell. And this would kind of turn into a uh, an emerging Lex Mercatoria kind of situation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the uh, that's the ideal the the ideal situation. I mean, um, Justice Ranvier has a phenomenal article. And uh, when I when I was reading it, I was doing shopping, and I did a little dance in the middle of the aisle because it was so well written. And uh, <laughs> but uh, he he talks about the concept of surety bonds. So this is um, writing into your your contract these bonds will put. Uh, they're essentially a, a way of describing them are like good performance bonds. So um, you, so you can say, okay, I agree that I will respond or send or ship the good to you within five days uh, after, you know, the, the funds have been transferred to the multi-signature address. And that can be written as a, as a clause within the contract. And then if the, um, if, if the seller fails to ship the good within five days, um, then the seller can be uh, – the, the, the bond that they've put aside for that good behavior can be taken away from them. And pay to the buyer because he failed to to uh, to do what he contractually said he would. But that doesn't invalidate the entire transaction. It's just a, a way of trying to improve um, certain elements of quality. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, he talks about Lex Cryptographia, and so he talks about very similar concepts to this. Um, and uh, it's it's pretty exciting to think about how it would all play out, and uh, it's sort of grabbing the popcorn and watching. So, well, I wonder, do you guys have any opinions? I'm wondering what this will do to how this will affect concepts of ownership, where you know, being ownership being displaced by control in situations like this. I, I have a I have a quick thought. There's a there's a wonderful article um, written by Murray Rothbard and. Um, Oh my gosh, William Evers. So I, I just remember his last name, Rothbard and Evers. They talk about title transfer contract theory. Uh, this was written before, a few decades ago, but it basically, um, it, it was described um, by Rothbard just a, a way of communicating or, or getting down to the core of how do you represent value and the transfer of value. And um, I suppose the Ricardian contract approach is is an implementation of that original concept, which is to, excuse me, re- essentially represent um, value by a contract. So you actually have a physical good, and then you have a piece of paper saying that this good belongs to this individual. And if I give you that piece of paper in exchange for another piece of paper, uh, either funds like Bitcoin itself or the title to uh, another physical good or service that I think is a fair trade and you think is a fair trade, then ownership has effectively been transferred. And so a good, I suppose a novel way of seeing how what Open Bazaar does is, is track those liabilities between individuals and those, um, those uh, title ownerships or title claims. Well, we've talked a whole bunch about, uh, about the marketplace itself and the theory behind it. I wonder what what kind of economy do you guys think is poised to adopt a system like Open Bazaar, and what changes do you think that economy will experience under the new market paradigm? Well, maybe I can give you just an overview of kind of like our our short term goals and our long term goals that will help you uh, kind of understand where where we want to go. Uh, the short-term goals for us are to capture some of those simpler use cases, uh, such as the eBay uh, use case or, or just like a fixed-price contract, rather than try and tackle some of the more complex uh, contracts that Washington has proposed, uh, such as uh, share issuance and things like that that you hear some of the other um, – Bitcoin 2.0 organizations kind of touting as as being the future. Um, you know, for the for the most part, the people that I've talked to, the interested people that are looking at Open Bazaar uh, for their usage, they're hoping to be able to replace things like Bitcoin, uh, where you could be set up auctions for Oh, hang on, Brian. It's uh, I've got a bit of uh, static on the line. Are you vacuuming, Washington? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and even if I were, I'm in Australia, so you know it wouldn't affect him. Okay. Uh, and the auctions. Uh, so, so most people are looking to use this for for just simple transactions, and I don't think that we're seeing a lot of uh, proactive demand for some of the more complex contract structure. Um, but what we want to do is we want to use the simpler contracts to essentially bolster the, the network 
to to basically bootstrap it to see if it's going to be efficient, um, it's going to work properly, kind of fix all of the the little bugs and kinks uh, that we're going to run into initially, and and then use the simpler use cases to meet that, and then and then once we do that, we'll build upon that foundation to start to build more of a complex economy. And, and I think in terms of whether or not we meet that that goal of of being able to do share issuance, peer-to-peer lending, other advanced models, that's really going to be up to the participants. If, if we can't get the traction that is needed to support that, then it's not going to exist. But I would have thought that there are, you could interface with other other platforms out there, say, uh the you know any any of these ones like next bitshares counterparty that offer assets you know, or digital you know blockchain asset systems yeah i think that one of the one of the kind of trends du jour lately has been that you come <laughs> out with a token and then you build this complex uh, contract structure on top of that token and, and people are using that as a way to differentiate between the coins, and they're using the token as a way to basically uh, reward themselves for coming up with novel concepts. And, I mean, I don't like to uh, – I mean, I've met a lot of people running some of these uh, projects, and they're, they're really great people, and, they're, and they're, they've got a lot of brilliant ideas. I think that our outlook is that – um, we're not going to tie what we're doing to a funding model. Um, we're trying to build something that stands on its own conceptually and can ride on any of those networks. And like you said, um, you know, initially we're gonna uh, we're gonna tie ourselves to to Bitcoin, but really anything that supports the the multi-signature kind of methodology of doing the transactions we could tie into uh open bazaar and we're hoping that once we get more uh support and we're able to to be able to tackle more things than just getting it out the door we can we can start to leverage those other currencies um so i i think that you know we can we can leverage what other people are coming up with and we can incorporate that like uh i don't know if i can't remember if washington mentioned it you know we're we're talking with uh nada from uh, bitrated he's you know building an arbitration network and we're talking to other people that are interested in different aspects of building a marketplace so that we're not just operating in a bubble we're mm. we're working together we're taking the best of uh, all these different concepts and trying to uh, encourage people to work with us, not against us. Yeah, and uh, I, I think there's an opportunity for, okay, let's say you have these other digital assets issued on, on these different platforms. Um, you know, you I, I guess people who want to trade those assets via Open Bazaar. You know, they can use Bitcoin as it was originally designed to be, which is a medium of exchange. Um, Bitcoin, you know, has the multi-signature escrow address function um, built into it now. And so if you wanted to sell a, a, you know, a digital asset issued on Next with uh, some other assets issued on Counterparty, um, that is most definitely very possible to do, and you can just represent the the value of that exchange, um, you know, with Bitcoin in a multi-signature address. So, if the you know 
buyer wants to uh, wants to purchase a, a digital token uh, issued on Next, they can keep the money or they can keep the Bitcoin in a multi-signature address until that transaction has actually taken place. And so, you know, you can use Bitcoin or, like Brian said, any other cryptocurrency with this multi-signature function as your medium of exchange. So, again, like what Brian said, we're trying to be fairly agnostic as to what's out there, but practical in the sense that multi-signature is, is really the best way to go about minimizing a lot of these risks associated with with pseudonymous exchanges i'm i just have had a thought about your uh about the auction system you, you were just talking about how would the ricardian contract tackle that would you create the contact contract at the end of the auction once it's uh once it's, mm. it's complete or would you update that as the auction progresses that's a great question we're uh we're addressing that ourselves at the moment um there when when i i found it i found it kind of interesting because i wrote the auction article um and it was about one o'clock in the morning and <laughs> it woke up you know uh, it was a uh, one o'clock in the morning and uh i was i was writing about the auctions and i was like oh okay how's this going to work uh, you need to be able to update the prices and then i mentioned this concept of uh like a negotiator node sort of a 24-7 node which would host the contract and would negotiate the terms of the contract on behalf of the seller. And so what they would basically have, you know, the seller, the original seller would write a recording contract saying, okay, I want to sell a chair, I want to start at 10 bucks, and that's my minimum buy, and I want to see what other people are willing to pay for it, and I want to sell it by auction. And so a negotiator node or a 24-7 node takes that contract uh, and with a couple of digital signatures, basically, you know, the seller authenticating that this negotiator node can negotiate the terms of the price, the final price on behalf of the seller, can basically um, receive different uh, buy orders from various parties and then update the price of that contract to, uh, you know, just basically in the public marketplace. And uh, finally, at the end of the of the auction, um, the negotiator node can write the final version of that contract, and then it can be passed around to the relevant parties for their digital signatures. And your you know, traditional recording contract model would proceed as as follows. Okay, and easy as that. Uh, well, yeah, it's easy to say that, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean we. Uh, again, this is some stuff that we've been talking about recently. What's the best way to to collect each of the digital signatures? There's there's certainly one way, like a hot potato model, where you know you get the contract, you add your details, you sign it, you pass it on to the next person, um, and and that might be appropriate for certain offline situations where one of the parties is not online and can't sign it in a detached signature way. Um, if you're familiar with PGP, you can either embed your signature in the like into a text file, or you can create a detached signature, um, which is just the text file with the signature and nothing else. It doesn't include the original transcript of the message that you've signed. So there's a couple of ways to do it. I think obviously the best way is for all of the parties to be online. You You can negotiate the terms of the contract, everybody can agree to it, somebody writes the final version, and then everybody just adds their 
their signature, their detached signature at the end of the document. That would that would be the the most straightforward way to do it. But if one of the parties is not online, that may not be um, that may not be possible. But like I said, um, we're still discussing it. We're still trying to figure out the best way to do these things. Yeah, and so I mean, I think that highlights one of the main challenges with building a network like this is that I think most people traditionally understand. Uh, e-commerce is being like, well, I just, you know, jump on my computer, I go to eBay, I buy, and then I walk away, and that's it. Or I jump on my cell phone and do that. But in this case, you know, in order for the the different parties to be able to communicate, they have to be available 24/7, or you have to come up with some kind of way that's going to mitigate that. Uh, you know, they're going to be able to handle that without requiring parties to be online all the time. And so we're coming up with novel ways to solve those problems. But what what also happens is that you end up in a situation where you're placing a lot of trust in all these different pseudonymous parties. And how, how do you do that effectively? How do you, I mean, everything is great if everyone plays fair, but we all know that in these kinds of systems, especially with, with money at stake, that not everybody plays fair and, and some people are out there to try and uh, jack with the network and, and we have to also be able to think about those things. And so, you know, we, we have a lot of discussion about how the actual transactions happen, but then we also flip it around and say, well, what happens if someone tries to break this? You know, like what happens if your, your 24 seven negotiator node is is malicious or, or, or what if somebody impersonates that that node there's a lot of things that have to be uh, accounted for and so it's not a simple process and that's yeah. why we want to we want to start simple and, and work our way out but we, we do have some some really great ideas on how to how to make those things happen and I'm sure we're going to feel pain as soon as we get enough people on the network, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, work through those issues as we go. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a cruel question, but how do you intend to uh, to deal with the reputation? That is a cruel question. <laughs> I know that. Um, I know that. Um, Manfred just said, you know what? I just found a way to get around having reputation uh, just by you know using his uh, collateral system and it sounds like you've got something similar but then you still need um, you have so much your project is so much more complex that um, at the end of the day it seems like you do need a reputation system in there somewhere yeah definitely and you know I mean beyond the cruel question the real cruel thing was that uh, Amir and his group that built Dark Market kind of threw it out there as well it's easy you just you know, rape people and it's done, you know, <laughs> and it was like eight lines of code, eight lines of Python code that where you send a rating about someone and it was like, well, I don't think that's going to really scale. So, <laughs> so, you know, we've had to like go back to the drawing board and be like, well, how do we make, you know, he's like a Disney Imagineer. It's like, well, how do we actually make that real? Um, and I think, you know, we've, got a lot of ideas on how that how that would work and we have very few uh, real working models to base it off of uh, a lot of our our fundamental thoughts have been based off of um, what what happened what happens at a Bitcoin OTC in terms of a web of trust 
And, and I think we've all come to agreement that that's kind of the approach in general that we're going to go after. Um, and, and it may not operate exactly like that, but, you know, the general concept is that we want people to, you know, as you, uh, you know, one thing I've noticed with a lot of these sites like eBay, Pinterest, Etsy, those types of social communities is that people start to, you know, initially they don't really have a network of people that they trust or that they interact with. But like as they grow, they find people that they, uh, that are reputable, that they can interact with consistently, that are responsive, things like that. And they naturally build these, uh, kind of like sub networks within, you know, within, within the overall network. And, um, and that, that creates this sense of trust between those parties. And, you know, obviously there are, uh, ways that that can be exploited, but, you know, in general, those webs of trust allow you to, uh, you know, establish kind of these, these ratings that are unique to your experience on the network. And, and that's what we're going to try and go for. So like your interactions with, uh, you know, party B and C, uh, will, um, be able to affect, you know, additional parties that come along if they, if they, you know, have a good experience with you, then they can trust the people that you trust and it just kind of expands from there. And, and that's how we're going to be able to, to build that, um, that network. And, you know, traditionally in some of these dark markets, you know, you just have these ratings, but they're all stored centrally. So it's very easy. Uh, you know, as long as you trust the people storing those ratings, then everything is consistent. In this case, you know, there could be people tampering with ratings. There could be people providing untruthful ratings, uh, you know, weighting ratings in, in weird ways or trying to overrate certain marketplaces to gain uh, unfair trust. So there's a lot of things to tackle. But, um, you know, we're, we think that people that try to build kind of these like self-promoting networks will end up hurting themselves in the long run because, uh, as people start to rate them down or, or kind of detach themselves from those, those circles, they'll get pushed to the outer bounds of the network and, um, you know, they just really won't even factor into, uh, the process. Yeah. And, um, uh, sorry, uh, there's, there's a wonderful article that have, has been written by one of the, uh, one of our, one of our members of, the, of our development team. It's an epic article by uh, Dionysus Zindros from uh, National Technical University of Athens. I believe he's doing his master's. Is that right, Brian? Yes. Yeah, he's doing his master's uh, basically on on how this web of trust might work on Open Bazaar, which is pretty cool. Um, and he, he's written this epic article uh, that I encourage people to hop on to the GitHub page and to our documentation and, and check it out. Um, but I think the thing is that, I think the thing to keep in mind is that we're not going for a silver bullet approach. Um, we're not going to put all of our eggs in one basket. Like we're not putting the only way that you can manage risk is going to be through the web of trust. Uh, likewise, we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket in the contractual systems, surety bonds, good, good performance, good behavior bonds. Uh, you know, the idea is that you would use uh, a lot of these systems in combination with each other. 
in order to form some sort of vague trust picture in the same way that, you know, if you're going to trade with somebody in the real world, you know, you just don't look at how much money they have in their wallet. You look how they're dressed. You look, you know, do they look kind of shady? You know, where are they selling? And again, none of these things individually can be trusted or relied upon by themselves, but taken together, they give a better picture of, of what you're trying to do. And I think there's some other interesting ideas that we've had in terms of, of the web of trust that this can also, um, can, can also be, uh, can be created as a line of credit. So, you know, uh, it's one thing to say that, yes, I trust this person, but it's another thing to say, I trust them enough that I will lend them this much money. Uh, in terms of Bitcoin, if they ask for it. And, and so to create this line of credit um, network might also be a, another way to communicate how much different pseudonymous peers trust each other. Okay, yeah, an actual skin in yeah, the game. Yeah, that's approach. right. So uh, again, one of you know, taken by themselves, you shouldn't trust any one thing. You should You should try to use them all together to get an idea. But of course, as much as we can, building a near trustless system contractually is preferable. Um, uh, but for a lot of the cases, we're, we're just not there. We're not at the place where we have distributed anonymous corporations running courier systems and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you have to fall back on human arbitration services. You have to fall back on these, uh, these other systems. Okay, well, I've got like I've got a lot of good stuff here, but the the one question I guess, or you know, it's kind of a two parter that I have at, like on my list. I have a little <laughs> list of questions here, and we've uh, you guys have actually gone through them sequentially without almost any prompting. It's been really great. <laughs> but yeah, do you have a specific economy in mind, or can you um do you have when you think about deploying this? Do you have a demographic mm -hmm. that you see, or a demographic that you see? potentially adopting this and what are the what makes that demographic unique uh, if i can start um i i suppose i haven't thought too deeply about this um so don't think that it's part of my master plan or something like that but it's i have kept in mind places like argentina bolivia zimbabwe where you have you know significant economic oppression uh, you know, it's almost laughable if it wasn't so sad, you know. Um, and I, I think of those situations where at the end of the day, people just want to trade and they want to eat and they they want to they want to accumulate capital so they can invest in their children's education and they can give their families a chance for a better life. It has nothing to do with with the, the garbage that the, the state can sometimes say, you know, that people just want to live and they want to thrive. And they don't want to just survive. Um, and, you know, okay, ideally we'd like to, we'd like to see Open Bazaar take off in those situations where this sort of marketplace platform is far more trustworthy than any traditional brick and mortar system that might be available to them locally. Um, however, you know, if you were to take this realistically, then those particular locales may not have good access to internet so that that may not work out um but who knows and, and well uh, i was just going to add to that um you know i can i can come from a different position is that you know i've received a lot of emails since 
starting the project from different people that have different interests and in, in why they might want to use Open Bazaar. And, you know, initially I got a lot of emails like, oh, I'm trying to sell my shady stuff. I need this now. Like, <laughs> I need it. <laughs> and it was like, uh, delete. You know, like, because it's just like, okay, I, I, I don't understand. But, like, I've gotten so many different types of emails from people like, for instance, well, we just recently got one, um, someone uh, in Spain who runs a real estate company wants to put mm. his real estate listings on the network and wants to sell real estate over it. Um, I got uh, another one from somebody who said, I've been an eBay merchant for 15 years and I hate these fees. I can't wait to mm. get off. I sell thousands of items in my, you know, he's got thousands of auctions daily and he wants to move them somewhere. Uh, I've also got people from other types of sites that just want somewhere easy that doesn't charge a lot, you know, to use uh, to sell their their small knickknacks that they build. And then I've also gotten, I've had a discussion with um, uh, there's uh, a woman named uh, Fereshta who runs uh, or is part of the Women's Annex, if you've heard of that, through Afghanistan. Um, oh yeah. They have, um, you know, these these women in Afghanistan who want to work can't really do so well in that country because, uh, you know, it's it's a man's world, and you know, you go to try and cash a paycheck at a bank, and they want to know where your brother or your husband is, or you know, there's just you know a lot of limitations on earning money and spending money, and they're starting to. Uh, solve the problem of earning money. They're, they're paying their bloggers with Bitcoin. But the next mm -hmm. question is, okay, now that you're stockpiling all your Bitcoin, what are you doing with it? Like, how, how are you going to spend that? And, and these kinds of tools, things like Open Bazaar, if people within Afghanistan, you know, these other fellow people there are starting to set up these local storefronts using something like our network, they can, begin to actually facilitate trade without having to, like you said, you know, have the state involved in, in deciding how you do that and who's able to participate. It's starting to liberate uh, these individuals who are smart enough to, to work, to earn money, to, to try and provide for their families. Um, and, and so I think those are the kinds of use cases that we're going to push really hard as part of Open Bazaar. You know, rather than have people come out and say, you're trying to sell guns, you're trying to, uh, you know, proliferate child pornography, you're trying to do all these negative things that you hear about with dark markets, we're trying to say, look, there are some really legit reasons why this is necessary. And, you yeah. know, this is, this is going to empower people. This is not going to hurt people. This is not going to push people down like, like you would like to you know, you'd like to think after reading some of the articles. And we had that a lot early on with Bitcoin and we're starting to get kind of past that connotation. But like now it's like, well, whatever you're building on top of Bitcoin now is going to cause these issues. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's like, it's just, just the next progression of people trying to scare everyone out of using these, these technologies. And so we're hoping that by, by taking these things mainstream, we're going to be able to dispel that notion. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's one final thing I, I, I want to add 
there's a, a sort of high and lofty vision um, that was presented by Mike Hearn a few years ago, which sort of set me off and, and put me in a collision course with Open Bazaar when it finally came out. And uh, I heard of it and, and, and Brian was leading it. Uh, Mike Hearn talked about this concept called the trade net um, because he was giving a talk, I believe, in London two years ago. We're talking about applications that could be built on top of Bitcoin uh, and, you know, what can Bitcoin support? What kind of things can be supported? And he talked about this concept of the trade net where you would uh, basically log on to the trade net. You put out a request. I need to find a cab that will take me from point A to point B, um, you know, as soon as I can. And then essentially you, you would write that as a contract. It will go out on a tender market. And, um, you know, it will come out as a tender and then five different cab companies would say, I can pick you up for this price and I'll get you from here to there, you know, within this period of time for this uh, for this quantity of, of bitcoins. And you would say yes. And then you'd hop in the taxi cab and then you can you can tell the taxi cab, I want you to overtake people and I'm going to give you, you know, point uh, zero one bitcoins <laughs> for overtaking people. And so. You would basically tip the people that you wanted to overtake so they would slow down and get on the left lane or the right lane and you would overtake them and blah, blah, blah. Um, or like, oh, I need somebody to fix my car or I need somebody to give me a, uh, you know, a fancy chair or something like that. Um, you know, there would this be this wonderful concept of, of this open marketplace where you can, you can put those kinds of requests out there. And of course, if it was designed correctly, you could also support you know, the, the, the buzzword distributed autonomous corporations and organizations that were, you know, interested in, you know, purchasing real goods and services. Um, and so I was looking around for like a couple of years, you know, who, who's doing this? Who can, who could possibly do this? Uh, and then Open Bazaar was just, you know, it's a natural evolution of, of where this concept can go to, you know, if everything works out. Um, but, you know, there are, there are a lot of caveats from here to there. But it's still, I mean, the, what's more exciting is, is the potential for decentralized marketplace platforms and what they're capable of and what they, they could do. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose that's my own high and lofty vision of, of where this can go. It's funny that uh, what sounds like a bad Will Smith uh, movie <laughs> made you uh, uh, come to Open Bazaar. Yeah. yeah, everyone has this uh, this utopian yeah. dream, and for a lot of people, it seems like there may be something on the something in the wind that that's blowing in that direction. Here's here's hoping, yeah. eh? fingers crossed. I mean, certainly you guys are doing you know great work and have a great platform, and I love the idea of you know Ricardian contracts are so easy to mm. understand, and yeah, they have that simplicity that robustness i really think that that is certainly that's the since bitcoin ricardian contracts is the thing that's really got me excited and um it's awesome to see you guys yeah and uh, just to, to to make it clear um we didn't invent that um that was invented by a gentleman called ian grigg uh in an article he wrote in 1999 encourage people to to check it out for themselves and he also came up with wrote an article about triple entry accounting and a couple of these concepts that people like Open Transactions and Open Bazaar and I'm sure other projects will build on, on top of that. Um, so, yeah, kudos to, to the original idea makers. 
Yeah, I certainly want to say that yeah. we're 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 definitely riding on the shoulders of giants in terms of all this oh, yeah. stuff, kind of uh, making sure we can take all these technologies and, and work them together. So, uh, you know, our goal is uh, very common with a lot of people, and and hopefully we'll be able to collaborate with them, and they'll you know mm-hmm. potentially hear this, and and we'll be able to get more participation as we grow. Well. That's a ton of stuff, I suppose. What? Um, how do people get uh, get in touch with you guys or follow your uh, follow the project? So our main hub is going to be through openbazaar.org. Uh, you can find most of our our content through that. Um, the development of the project is all being routed through GitHub. So GitHub.com/openbazaar, and uh, you know a lot of our, our discussions happen on IRC. So we're on Freenode at uh, hash Open Bazaar. We're on, in there almost twenty four seven, and uh, you know that's that's where it's happening, I guess. <laughs> cool, awesome. Well, thanks for coming and talking to me, guys. You know this is uh, this is fantastic. You know I'm uh, I'm absolutely wrapped. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah, I'll be I'll be in touch to catch up in a little while. You know, in a couple of months to see how things have uh, things have progressed. I know this this is going to get. S- so much interest from the community people are just freak out about it yeah, if really they want excited. to channel their uh, their their excitement into uh support in terms of bitcoin funds that would that would be much appreciated uh, but rather than just <laughs> simply donating to the address that we have on the front page although of course we welcome that um if they can send their funds potentially to tip for commits uh which is a service that basically um rewards people who commit code to the project in bitcoin uh, that 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 helps a, a great deal. And also, uh, baby formula. If uh, if you have extra baby formula, uh, <laughs> Washington could use that as well. Oh God! <laughs> cool. Well, I'll publish this uh, on Wednesday, so you guys can um, should be Hopefully up by we're then. Hopefully, not in prison by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Tell me. Yeah, about and of course, oh, I'm in the U.S. So thank yeah, you. If we're, in, if we're in New York, oh my gosh. that's it for this week folks pertinent websites can be found in the notes thanks to CSIS for the music Brian Hoffman and Washington Sanchez for the content catch you guys next week same bit time same bit channel